It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. The two most popular titles for the people of God in this new covenant era are the titles believers and Christians. Yet surprisingly, you only find the name believers twice and you only find the name Christians three times in the word of God. But you find the title disciples 255 times in the New Testament and one time in the Old Testament. And amazingly, that one time in the Old Testament is actually a prophecy of the new covenant people of God to come in this era. So God's emphasis in our lives should be discipleship because whatever God emphasizes, we should emphasize. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is trained and taught in the functioning of the kingdom of God, the laws of the kingdom of God, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They are trained through the word and by the spirit in the things of God to be his representatives in this world. I've met many people who are professing Christians. I've met many who would call themselves believers, but there is a much smaller percentage of those that I believe qualify to be called true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are 10 primary signs of a true disciple to be found in the New Testament, and let's go over all 10 of them starting with Luke chapter 14, verse 26. In the New King James Version, this is how it's worded. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, was Jesus encouraging us to have animosity toward our family members? to abandon them, to treat them abusively. When he said, you've got to hate father, mother, wife, children, lands, brethren. But he also said, you've got to hate your own life also. He certainly wasn't promoting self-hatred or self-degradation. So what did he really mean? Well, when you go back to the original Greek, the word translated hate really can mean to love less. And for that reason, another translation says, you cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. You cannot come with me unless you love me more than you love your own life. I prefer that translation, but it still presents a very powerful challenge to love God more than anything and everything in life that is important to us. God has to occupy the number one position. Now, the second sign of a true disciple is persecution. 
I know that doesn't sound very pleasing to the ear, but listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew 10, verse 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And then he went on to say, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Now, Beelzebub was a very degrading name for Satan, used more back then, not so much now, but it means either Lord of the Flies or God of the Dung, a very degrading title for the Prince of Darkness. And yet they hurled that the direction of the Son of God. They claimed that that's who he was motivated by when he was sent from heaven and endued with the power of the Father to bring salvation and redemption to Israel. Yet they mislabeled him altogether as a heretic worthy of death. And he said, a disciple is not above his teacher. So if we're following him and if we truly present the gospel, even in love, just as he presented it in love, yet we suffer persecution and rejection, reviling and ridicule, we should not be surprised, nor discouraged, nor disheartened, because it's not really people, it's not flesh and blood that we fight, but powers and principalities Demon spirits that hate what we stand for will funnel that hatred through people. And we've got to love the people, yet hate the unbelief that they're bound by. And, and we've got to love the people, yet hate the demonic influence that they're under. We must forgive. We must be peacemakers, even if we are rejected. Maybe that's why in the Beatitudes, after Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. He then said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, because many times, even when you give out good, you receive rejection from others as a result. Now, I can't think of this sign of discipleship without thinking of Ignatius. Ignatius was a bishop of Antioch. He was the student of Polycarp, who was the student of John the Apostle, a great man of God. He was being carried off to the stadium to be offered up with many other Christians to the wild animals that would tear them limb from limb in the name of entertainment. Can you imagine a bloodthirsty crowd getting any kind of enjoyment over watching the torturous treatment of Christians. On his way to the stadium, though, on his way to that horrible fate, Ignatius was quoted as saying this, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things visible or invisible envy me that I should attain to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings and breakings and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. If Ignatius said that was beginning to be a disciple, I'm not sure that I've even started. And yet, that's the second sign of a true follower who is following the Lord Jesus Christ in his discipleship call. Number three is fruitfulness. 
In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so will you be my disciples. So true disciples, authentic disciples, are fruit-bearing people. They're not just idle believers sitting on a pew once a week, getting a sermon lodged in their intellect, but they are out there making a difference in the world. And fruit represents a lot of things. Uh, it can represent the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, and all the other attributes of the Holy Spirit. Fruit can be works done for the kingdom. Fruit can be souls won to the Lord, according to John chapter 4, verse 36. And fruit can also be praise, because Hebrews 13, 15 says, Let us offer unto God the sacrifice of praise to God continually, which is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 16, you find the word fruit eight times. And that's where Jesus talks about how he is the vine and we are the branches. And that's where you find this discipleship passage where he said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. But the only way we can bear fruit is if we abide in the vine and if his word abides in us. And then we're going to make a difference in this world, I guarantee you. The fourth sign of a true disciple is love. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the word translated love is agape, which is the divine kind of love that is full of mercy and full of grace and overflows with humility and long-suffering. See, there's three primary Greek words for love. Eros is erotic love. It's flesh-based love. It's love based on gratification of desire. You love a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or you love a certain kind of sport. You love the feeling that you get when you stand on the beach. It's all something that gratifies you. And then there's phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, which means a brotherly kind of camaraderie, the love that you have in a club or a close-knit group of people. But usually, even in those kind of groups, if someone stops loving you, you tend to stop loving that person. But agape love is freely bestowed even on enemies, those who offend you, those who hurt you, those who damage your life. You still love them back. Now, this is easy to preach, harder to do, but he said this is a sign of an authentic disciple if you can love one another with an agape kind of love. God, help us to do so. Let love increase in all of us. Number five, the fifth sign of a true disciple is something I call continuance or persistence. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Another version says, if you abide in my word. That means you don't draw back from any commandment. And you may say, we're in the New Testament. It's not about commandments. Oh, yes, it is. In the Old Testament, there were 
613 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that were revered and respected highly by the Jewish people. But when you come to the New Testament, you find 1,050 commandments. And if you want the whole list, just go to my website, shreveministries.org, and send me an email and request the list of 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. But may I warn you, where knowledge is, there comes responsibility as well. And if you know about those commandments, you are responsible to fulfill them. It's surprising how few emails I get when I mention that. But if you abide in his word, if you continue in his word, if you're passionate enough to read the Bible and say, I'm not doing that yet. I'm not doing this yet. I'm not forgiving enough. I'm not prayerful enough. I'm not doing what I should do to properly yield to God. I'm not fasting as I should. It shouldn't bring self-condemnation. It shouldn't bring uh, an a negative attitude in your mind of being a failure at being a Christian, but it should motivate you to be a God pleaser, to do all you can, all that is humanly possible to continue in the commandments of his word and the promises of his word, to apply the entirety of the word of God to your life and not run from any of it, not turn your back on any of it, not ignore any of it, but take the entire word until the word is imaged in you. Just like Jesus was the word made flesh. He's called you and I to be living epistles, read indeed of all men, where the word expresses itself through our lives. The sixth sign of a true disciple is cross-bearing. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that? He said, you cannot be my disciple unless you bear your cross. And notice he did say, unless a person bears his cross, personal pronoun, you have a cross that is different than the cross I possess. Because God has established your life with a certain set of circumstances that will produce a complete death to self if you fulfill the purpose of God and if you fulfill the mandate to be Christ-like in your relationship with others. Everyone's cross is different, but a cross is total death to self in order for others to be blessed, for others to be helped. Because a cross is not your own personal sufferings. Jesus didn't go to the cross out of his own personal need. That cross was all about paying the price necessary for others to be redeemed, for the sin of the human race to be atoned for. And so a cross is all about other people, not about our own pain, our own suffering. And Jesus said, if we don't bear our cross... We cannot be his disciple. God help us to be courageous enough to take that mandate and draw it into our lives and fulfill it and obey it. The seventh sign of a disciple follows the cross-bearing demand. In verse 28 of the same chapter, in fact, Luke 14 verses 27 through 35 are all about discipleship. It is the discipleship passage of the New Testament. 
And he said right after the cross-bearing mandate, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Or if you start to build it and you can't finish it, then people will mock and make fun and say you weren't able to fulfill the commitment you made. And of course, I'm extrapolating on what Jesus said. So you've got to count the cost. You've got to have a builder mindset. He said, which of you intending to build a tower? So if you're a disciple, you're building something and you're counting the cost. You know what it's going to take what kind of self-denial, what kind of commitment, what kind of consecration it's going to take to finish that that you're building for the glory of the name of the Lord. Because the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And we build that tower. We enshrine the name of the Lord with what we do in our lives. But there's a cost. There's a price to be paid. Also, disciples have a warrior mindset. The next few verses say this. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. That's a mysterious analogy there, a mysterious parabolic statement. Because yes, he was talking about a warrior mindset that a true disciple has to have. This is still talking about discipleship. It starts out that way. But he also brings out the fact that a discipleship mindset means to weigh things out and figure out how to bring peace when you could cause conflict. You could fight, but there may be a way to solve the situation that would bring peace. And so this is not only about having a warrior mindset, but it's about having the mindset of an ambassador, someone who tries to take countries that are pitted against each other and bring harmony between them. Sometimes we as disciples have the power to harmonize people that are totally set against each other. And that's, of course, the miracle of the love of God within us. Then Jesus made such a powerful statement in the next verse, verse 33 of Luke chapter 14. He said, so likewise, whoever of you Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. What a strong statement again. He said, except a man forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Then he said, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? So the seasoning or the saltiness of a believer is a commitment to discipleship that extends as far as being willing to forsake all. Now, does that mean that you literally have to give up everything you own? Does that mean you have to give away your car, your home, your clothing, your money, cancel your bank account and give away all your money to the poor? I do believe Jesus demanded that kind of sacrifice from those who followed him when he walked the earth. And I do believe he still demands it of people now at times, but I don't believe he demands that of everyone, not by any means. But he does demand that we put all these things on an altar, 
so that we no longer own the house or own the car or own the clothing or own the money. It's all his. We put it on an altar and and distribute it as he sees fit or use it as he sees fit. So we relinquish the reins to all material possessions. Now, I literally fulfilled that mandate. Back in the very beginning, when I was part of the Jesus movement era, I lived in a Jesus commune right after I got saved. One of the other members of the commune and I were sitting around a campfire one night about two o'clock in the morning, and we read Luke chapter 14, and he pointed out that verse to me. Except a man forsake all, he cannot be my disciple. He said, do you know anybody doing that? I said, no, I don't. Because we all had jobs. We all worked at construction jobs during the day, and we had our prayer meetings every night. It was a fantastic commune, wonderful commune, where we were constantly edifying and strengthening one another, but we had not forsaken all. I said, I don't know anyone doing that. He said, let's do it. I said, I'm game. So the next day we put in our notice, we quit our jobs, we gave away all our money to the poor, we gave away all our possessions, which was more of a commitment for him because he had a car and all I had was about $1,000 worth of music equipment, gave all of that away, gave away all of our clothes except for one change of clothes and felt a little condemned about that. But we found out later that one change of clothes was very helpful when we had to wash the other set at a laundromat. But uh, we we struck out hitchhiking. We had a little sign that said, going for Jesus. And we stepped out on the interstate and hitchhiked 500 miles to go to Bloomington, Indiana, where we had an invitation to hold a revival at a church. When we got there, the pastor told us he'd changed his mind. So we had given up everything we owned, hitchhiked 500 miles, gone hungry for days at a time, we were living in an abandoned shack out in the woods that we found when we got to Bloomington, Indiana, and our first revival gets canceled before we preach the first sermon. Now, that's a little discouraging, but remember, Jesus did say, if, if you sacrifice anything, you receive a hundredfold, and so it's a long story. I don't have time to tell it all, but Bob and I walked down the street, and we decided, you know, we came to Indiana to preach, so we're going to preach. And we found a plot of ground in Bloomington, Indiana, that had been bought by the Yippies. Those were hippies that became politically motivated, and they got involved in the political process, and they were called Yippies. And they were mostly socialists or of a communistic mindset. And they had bought this property, and there was a big sign in the middle of the property that said, for the free use of anybody that wanted to use it. And it was a statement for the Yippie mindset. And so Bob said, that's our church. They said, it's free for the use of anybody. And so that was step number one. Then he said, we got to have advertisements. So we went over to the Pizza Hut restaurant across the street, got up in the dumpster, got a bunch of old pizza boxes. We wrote revival, old-fashioned street preaching, miracle signs and wonders, healing the sick, casting out devils every night at 7.30 on those boxes. And then we also got about 50 or 60, maybe more, Paps blue ribbon cardboard boxes that we flattened out to be our pews because we didn't want people sitting on wet grass. And we had these uh, these uh, little placards we made out of pizza boxes 
advertising that we were going to be holding church every night at seven o'clock. We put them at the four corners of that field. About a hundred people showed up. We would never have gotten that kind of response at that little church that had about 15 or 20 members. And most of them were kind of hard shell, legalistic minded people that wouldn't have ever opened their hearts to the kind of people we dealt with that night. About a hundred people came, most of them on drugs and into all kinds of occultism and new age spirituality. One guy there was part of the lead band that played before Led Zeppelin in their concerts. I preached my first sermon on except a man lose his life for my sake and for the gospels, he shall not find it. And gave an invitation and about 70 people gave their hearts to the Lord. And that was my first outpouring of revival and harvest and move of God that happened in my life after forsaking all. I never stopped traveling. From that point forward, it was winning thousands of souls. It was worth it. It was an adventure. It was a demanding thing. Many times we'd go many days without a bite of food. We just called it a fast but we took the call to discipleship. I don't believe there's enough people doing that now. I don't believe there's enough mission-minded people now. There's a lot of believers who want to be comfortable in their Christianity, but we live in a very critical era. This is a crisis era where there is such a challenge to the fundamental biblical principles that help to shape Western society And if we don't rise up and bring revival to this generation, we may lose our freedoms and we may lose the ground we've gained with respect to Christianity and new age spirituality may take over at breakneck speed. We've got to make a greater commitment of our life to fulfill the mandate to discipleship. If we do, then the final, the 10th sign of a disciple will belong to us. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so a true disciple is someone who not only gives, not only forsakes, not only sacrifices, not only bears a cross, but receives from God endowment with power, power and authority to represent God in this world not only in spoken words, but in the demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out devils, even to the point of raising the dead as happened in the early church and happened in the life of Jesus. These supernatural signs still happen because there's still people that are paying the price of discipleship. I challenge you to do it. I challenge you to step into a life of adventure, serving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. 
We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be. 